the pandemic, social unrest, the state, and the White House. You are listening to The John DePietro Show. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's John DePietro on this Monday. The time right now is 106 on AM 1380 and also 99.9 FM. Remember, you can always listen online at the website, dipetro.com. This portion of the John DePetro Show is brought to you by Henry Oil. Make Henry Oil your oil provider. Call them today, serving most of Rhode Island in southeastern Mass. It's Henry Oil. You can depend on Henry Oil since 1947. It's Henry Oil. Give them a call today. Full service oil delivery company. And not only that, but on top of that, you can depend on Henry Oil. Reliable, affordable fuel oil delivery. Fuel oil, diesel, gasoline, 401-521-0200. Henry Oil, 401-521-0200. Lock and cap pricing online at henryoil.com. Automatic delivery, budget plan, service contracts, oil burner service and installation. It's Henry Oil, 401 401- Five two one zero two hundred. Well, folks, we're hearing more and more now. Right now, it's one oh seven on this on this Monday, and I'm uh, really seeing a lot that the state is acknowledging that the latest now that the latest uh, situation regarding the Department of Health and uh, exactly how the vaccine is going for today. In case you're just you know wondering, what is the vaccine? When can you get it? There's been a lot of talk this morning. There were more problems with the website. There's, uh, there's a lot of problems with people showing up and signing up, and then the state does not stop them from, from getting it. So now, right now, it's 108 in the Ocean State. And I had one of our listeners. There were 100 people at the Dunkin' Donuts Center today at 930, and more than half was under 75 People registered, they let them get it, um, and they're, they're not even stopping people who are receiving the vaccine, who are not supposed to be receiving the vaccine. So it's, it's up to the state to stop it, and they're not stopping it, but that's really been uh, just another, I mean, the end of the week was bad, and then this week starts with, you know, more of a, a disaster. So I, I just, I mean, at what point, Governor Mundo is not going to do anything. She is not, she is checked out. She is waiting to find out when her full Senate vote confirmation is going to happen. Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo. Meanwhile, incoming Governor Dan McKee, he doesn't have full authority to make some of the changes, you know, that that he'd like to try to streamline it and get it, you know, working, obviously, more effectively. So, um, I, I so th- this is just going to stay this way for a while. A, a big thing that happened was they were saying that today was supposed to be people 65 and older is going to drop down. So 65 and older were supposed to be able to get the vaccine. So people were staying up and at midnight figuring they would be able to do it. But the Department of Health said, well, we're not going to make it available until nine o'clock this morning. Now, when people hear Monday, the 22nd, people were thinking, oh, OK, 
So it'll be Monday, and Monday began at 12.01. But it didn't happen that way. So people stayed up till 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. This morning, other people got up, 6 o'clock in the morning trying, still nothing. I mean, this is just sheer incompetence. There's no reason for it. Someone should be held accountable for it. Um, I also am seeing this. They, they're claiming they're slowly getting things on track. But I think uh, Brian Crandall tweeted out, good news, my parents got vaccine appointments for later this week. This is a Channel Reporter, Channel 10 Reporter. My mom started in line at midnight, then again at 6 a.m. Didn't know sign up would, it didn't start, the sign ups didn't start till 9 o'clock. Very frustrated. Spent hours putting in info over and over again. Spokesman, Rhode Island Health spokesman on opening up 65 plus vaccine registration after nine. A lot of folks thought it'd be earlier. In hindsight, probably let people know the time ahead. Could have handled different differently. That's another screw up. What is their problem? Uh, I'm seeing again, Channel 10, vaccination slots are opening quick. Thousands open this morning. Now looks like every one of those except for a few have already been filled till next week. So I I don't. Rhode Island uh, Health has announced two field hospitals will stop seeing patients. So the convention center site will stop seeing patients later this week. Cranston site, two to three weeks. Complete waste of money complete waste of money but for those um you have to still log on let me uh just see if i um let's see this is fixed many issues you're still seeing several people the rhode island health ri health vaccinate ri.org site is a bit faulty this morning registration opens up to 65 plus the phone line is also not working properly My God, what is their problem over there? Someone needs to be held accountable. What is this? Right? I mean, why? You know, there was also, um, when you you click on the Rhode Island Department of Health press release, opens to Rhode Island is 65 and older. And then when you click on it, (laughs) it says the page you're looking for does not exist. God. Oh, maybe should they had the wrong link. All right. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt then. Then uh, they had the wrong link. Let me get to the proper one. All right. Vaccine eligibility. Rhode Island is 65 and older. Continue to accelerate. So if you're listing right now, people 65 or older registered to be vaccinated. One of the state, two state run vaccination sites. One is at the Dunkin' Donuts Center, and the other was in Krantz and Sakonasa Crossroad. To register to be vaccinated at a state-run site, you go to vaccinateri.org. People who cannot register online can help by calling the automated line at 844-930-1779. People who are 65 and older can also register to be vaccinated at select CVS or Walgreens pharmacies through their city and town. However, appointments may not be immediately available for all eligible Rhode Islanders. Uh, 9,900 Rhode Islanders were vaccinated at the two state-run sites over the first three days of the operation, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. 10,000 new appointments will be made available 
meaning today, Monday, and they're already gone. Rhode Island's vaccine administration rate has increased by 89% over the last six weeks. In December, an average of 1,300 doses were administered per day. That figure was 2,700 doses per day in January, 5,100 doses per day in February, and more than 203,000 doses have been administered. No insurance requirement to get vaccinated, and no one has to pay to get vaccinated. So, um, so folks, my again, my suggestion is I uh, it's 65 plus, but I, I, I your your best bet from what I understand the the Walgreens and CVS that that goes moves very very, um, it it goes very quickly the appointments. So I would suggest. That you do either the dunk, and I know it's not, it's certainly not convenient, but I would go to one of the uh, state-run sites, one of the state-run sites, whether it's the dunk or in Cranston, which is right right across from Garden City. If you can get to Garden City, you can, you can find it. So now I also want to play Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline. And again, folks, good afternoon. It's one fifteen. It's John DePietro on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline talked about his role with the failed impeachment. Well, they failed in the Senate. The Senate trial was unsuccessful. So he gives his first uh, extensive interview to Tim White and Ted Nisi with the Newsmaker Program. So I want to play a little bit of it, uh, and you'll get to hear from Congressman Cicilline, who, listen, without question, this raised his profile. It was tremendous for him. He's raised a lot of money out of this. He is certainly a big figure in Washington. And then locally, his team manipulates the media to put up that he gets death threats from the Trump people and blah, blah, blah. So let's listen. Uh, we'll play a little bit of this. This is Ted Nisi, Tim White, Newsmakers Channel 12, and his special guest is Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline. So let's listen. We have a lot of ground to cover today, Congressman, but we, we're going to start, Master of the Obvious, here with the impeachment. There was little chance uh, that you were going to get the 17 Senate Republicans needed to secure a conviction, and that turned out to be the case. Did you go into this knowing it was a lost cause for conviction? Not at all. You know, I think we all, all of the House managers believe that the evidence of the president's guilt was so overwhelming that we really hoped that uh, the Senate, the jury in this case, uh, would listen carefully to the evidence and understand that the president clearly incited a violent insurrection against the government of the United States and would find him guilty. And although we knew it was an uphill battle, uh, we thought if we methodically went through the events, as we did, just the facts, that we would persuade a enough senators to convict him. As you said, it was the largest and most bipartisan impeachment of a president in U.S. history. We didn't reach the two-thirds, but 57 members of the United States Senate found the president guilty of inciting a violent insurrection against the government of the United States. You know, I wondered if the first impeachment 
of the the president um, over, you know, accused of soliciting foreign influence to, to help an election, if that actually hurt your chances in the second? In other words, would you have had more support from Senate Republicans and possibly the public had the first one not happened? I don't know. Look, we have a responsibility. We, we take an oath of office to defend uh, the Constitution, to honor our oath of office. And when you see evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, the Congress has a responsibility to act. And our founders put in the Constitution one mechanism, that's impeachment. Uh, we did that in the first impeachment, and they acquitted the president then. This was, uh, this was different because this played out in plain view before uh, the, uh, on live television. Millions of Americans watched this insurrection. They watched the president incited over many months as he promoted the big lie that he actually won the election and had been stolen from him. So this was different in that the events really played out in public, but it was also different because he incited violence against the government of the United States to stop the peaceful transfer of power, which is really the cornerstone of our democracy. You know, we have for hundreds of years transferred peacefully from one president to another without interruption. This is the first time in our history that was interrupted, and it was interrupted because the president incited a violent, angry mob to come to the Capitol and literally stop the transfer of power. And we had a responsibility to impeach, and we did it in a bipartisan way, the most bipartisan impeachment in the House ever. We did it quickly, and we presented, I think, compelling and overwhelming evidence. Even Mitch McConnell said the evidence was compelling, that in fact the president of the United States committed this offense, but he relied on this sort of bogus constitutional argument to avoid responsibility. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about Mitch McConnell because uh, every juror had the same vote, but no vote was probably more important than his decision. And there was a time it sound, seemed like he was wavering and might vote to convict, even though he didn't. He explained his rationale in the Wall Street Journal, and he said, quote, the Constitution presupposes that anyone convicted by the Senate must have an office from which to be removed. And he went on to suggest that there would be no stopping point at former officers. You could impeach people left and right and then disqualify them for running for office. Um, you know, he, he, he knows the law too. Why is he wrong? Yeah, he's, he's wrong because for more than 200 years it has been the precedent in the United States Senate and in this country that former officials can be impeached. In fact, the first impeachment ever conducted in the Congress of the United States was of a former United States Senator. Then there was the Blount case, Belknap case. These were all former officials. So it was well accepted that former officials could be impeached. And there had, that has always been the tradition in the United States Senate. And the reason that exists is because if you allow someone simply to resign, they could commit the most serious defense against the United States and simply resign and then avoid responsibility. So it had always been the rule of the Senate and the precedent that former officials could be impeached. This sort of January exception, as Mr. Raskin described it, this idea of like, you can do really bad stuff at the very end of your term and avoid responsibility is a very dangerous precedent because it will invite misconduct if people think, oh, we can just get away with it as long as you do it late enough. So it was an, a way to avoid, I think, the over overwhelming evidence of the president's guilt, which Mitch McConnell So you don't buy the constitutional argument no, made by Senator No, he's wrong. I mean, it's, it's contrary to 200 years of precedent. Uh, there were 140 constitutional scholars who all agreed. You know, folks, again, that's Congressman David Cicilline on Newsmakers. You know, he lives in an alternate universe. They, they didn't have the votes. They were never getting the votes. It was, it was never designed to go after a former president. And that's why it failed. Were they really screwed up? And I've talked about this before. And again, good afternoon. It's John DePietro on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. 
There have been legal scholars that have said the mistake made by the impeachment managers, and Cicilline's trying to, you know, still keep the talking points going here, is the real case, if they wanted to make it, it was dereliction of duty in the afternoon, if you wanted to, once it started. Once the problem started, not the buildup to it. But he just stays with the talking points. All right, it continues. The president could be impeached and convicted even as a former official. And also remember, he was impeached while he was in office for conduct he committed while in office. The only reason he, the trial didn't happen is Not because true. Mitch McConnell didn't bring the Senate back into session to receive the articles. So it's a little rich for him to say, oh, too bad it's too late. I think, again, it was a way of him but trying it was to have it both ways. To confront the it overwhelming evidence of the president's guilt, but avoid doing what he should have done by, by relying it on this bogus constitution. Let me ask you about a uh, different Republican, Senator Mike Lee. Uh, you got you had two uh, sort of dramatic exchanges where he objected because you were mentioning uh, a, a telephone conversation involving the president as you laid out your case. Uh, an Associated Press fact check did say you were correct. You had you were right in how you put it, and you weren't wrong. But especially after the first time, you knew Mike Lee was going to jump up and get upset. And the second time, you know, just as a, as trial strategy, was it wise to keep kind of poking the bear with him when, you know, our phones and Twitter, well, did you see Congressman Cicilline just got it wrong again, even if the fact checkers said you had it right, it created this, this well, it didn't really involve Mike Lee at all. That, that evidence was that Mike Lee received a phone call that was intended for Senator Tuberville. He then handed, that was from the President of the United States, he handed the phone to Senator Tuberville and they had a conversation in which the President, in the middle of the insurrection, while his own Vice President was under violent attack, was still trying to get He's Senators to object attack. to the certification. So Mike Lee really Why? didn't play a role other than handing Why? his phone to Senator Tuberville. I think he was just fearful of being involved in any way, uh, I think because of his, you know, fear of the president, that he didn't want to look like he was a witness or contributing yeah, to, in any way. To Ted's question, the House managers retracted that the first time around, just like, it's not important, so let's not even deal with it and move on. But you brought it up again. Well, it's in. it was evidence in the record, and it's important evidence because it showed the president of the United States in the middle of this violent attack on the Capitol, wasn't, didn't call for help, didn't send troops, didn't send backup, didn't inquire how can I be helpful. He's on the phone trying to secure a senator to object to the certification. It went to the president's state of mind, which is really critical in the case. All right, it wasn't lost on Ted and I that uh, when you arrived at our studios today, um, that you were uh, you had a security detail with you, and, and we know that your office was bombarded with threats for your role in the impeachment proceedings. Now that the president was acquitted and the trials in the rearview mirror, have the calls and emails to your office of the threatening nature have they calmed down a little bit, or is it still pretty intense? Uh, they you know, they continue. That's, uh, I, I, you know, I expect that to go on for some, uh, some time, but it'll dissipate and uh, I won't need a security detail forever. Do you, uh, did you, was there anything that it. rose to the level that law enforcement was, I mean, they're concerned enough to have a security detail, but anything to led to an investigation or anything? Or is it just I, I don't know. When, when we receive threats, there's a protocol in place to report those to the Capitol Police and they make assessments and judgments about what security is necessary and how to respond. But you're not fearful? after no. the experience. Let me ask you one more about, uh, there's other things we do want to talk about, but this was such a big moment. Um, I, I want to ask you one of the trial strategy thing, and that was about Saturday morning. Uh, we thought 
I wrote my column that I thought there would be a vote Saturday afternoon, then I thought, oh, they're going to make a liar, because all of a sudden there was a, the House managers moved and asked for a vote on witnesses, which hadn't been expected. You, you win that vote to call witnesses, then there's confusion in the Senate for an hour or two or whatever, and then the House managers back off, there's no call for witnesses. Uh, and I guess basically it seemed like either there was a mistaken strategy by going for witnesses that morning or uh, some people say you all kind of chickened out because it was going in a direction you could no longer uh, control. What happened? It's actually a third thing. We got what we wanted. So the witness question is raised at the conclusion of the presentation from both sides. That was in the Senate resolution. So after we presented our case, we had the opportunity to listen to the president's defense. The president didn't present any evidence to refute a single factual uh, uh, we made during the presentation of our case. So we didn't find a need to present additional witnesses. We presented dozens of witnesses through videos, through statements to the media, a number of uh, other statements. So we had presented a number of witnesses. The question arose the night before when we learned for the first time that Jamie Herrera Butler had reported about a, a conversation. That's right. Who had reported that she had a conversation with Mr. McCarthy in which she acknowledged that in the middle of this attack, he called the president of the United States and said, we need help. We're under attack. The president said, oh, that's Antifa. Kevin McCarthy said, no, Mr. President, these are your supporters. We need help. And he said, well, Kevin, I guess they care more about the election results than you do, which was just you know, shocking uh, new testimony. So we thought it was very important that come before the Senate jury, and we intended to call her as a witness. Uh, we did, weren't successful in getting her. She sort of went silent on us after that statement was issued. So we had to figure out how do we get this testimony before the jury without having her physically there. The Republicans agreed that they would submit her statement for the record, which would become part of the full evidentiary record. We would rely on it and be able to argue it. And the advantage to that is we didn't have to run the risk that they would have the opportunity to bring a single witness in rebuttal. They could bring in Kevin McCarthy. We didn't have any confidence that he would be truthful. He could say, geez, I don't remember that. Or, you know, I know the president. If he but knew about been, this, he would... It's been reported that Senator Coons from Delaware came to the room where the impeachment managers were. He's very close to President Biden. And in some form or fashion told you, like, cut it out. What are you doing? No, Why look, are we our decision, our decision was wow. we got the evidence before exactly the jury right. in the best form with no risk. Nope. And that Biden was told them to no sure more that witnesses. The jury knew this conversation happened. It was a sworn statement. It nope. was put into the record. Not so we achieved that objective, which was nope. our goal in calling her as a witness, without the risk of any additional witnesses. So we got exactly what we wanted. The Republicans agreed to it, and it was a big victory. We're going to go to a break in a couple of minutes here. I just want to kind of step back and wrap up this conversation on the impeachment trial, and, and we'll move on in the second half. But. Uh, when you uh, step back, take a look at it, Republican or Democrat, an impeachment trial over an attack on the Capitol is, is huge. Um, and I, I wondered if you appreciated in the moment the historic nature of what was oh, happening. Come on, or Tim. were you just so consumed with getting ready for the trial and what was he going was on? raising money off it. Uh, you know, I think you, you do... When I was first asked to be an impeachment manager, it you, kind of hits you the gravity of this folks, moment. He was and pleading the with them to have. make him an impeachment You are there manager. defending the decision of the House He's to impeach the President of the United States, but not for any crime, but for inciting a violent insurrection against the government of the United States. Just when you say those words, it's sort of shocking. Uh, the evidence was that the President incited folks to come to the Capitol and disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, which is so critical to our democracy. 
democracy. So yeah, I think when I was first appointed, it struck me, the gravity of the moment. But then you get into the work and you have a case to present and you have evidence to review and you have arguments to prepare. Um, but it was not lost on us throughout the proceedings, the gravity of our responsibility and the consequences of the work we were doing, which is why we worked around the clock hard as a team to make the most persuasive case to the jury that we possibly Did you have to dust off that party. You haven't been in law school in a while. You haven't been a practicing attorney in a long time. Was it challenging to kind of ramp back up again? It was, particularly since it was my first time I've ever prosecuted a case. That's true. You know, most of my life I was a defense lawyer, so this was a new role for me, but it was a tremendous honor to have the privilege of defending our democracy, having been a student of the law. and he was begging them to let him so do it. It was a great source of pride for me to have this. And he made a lot of money off it. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, a lot to cover, including the future of Facebook. Our guest this week, Congressman David Cicilline. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. All right. And again, folks, good afternoon. It's John DePietro on... On AM 1380 and 99.9 FM, this portion of the program. Now listen, there's uh, some rain in the area this afternoon. You have a lot of snow and ice. Remember, if you find yourself in an accident or someone you know, did someone hit your vehicle, whether it's a small dent or a nearly total vehicle, you can depend on West Fountain Auto Body. Call them, 401-272-3340. 401-272-3340, West Fountain Auto Body. They're located 400 West Fountain Street in Providence, right behind the Providence Public Safety Complex. You can depend on West Fountain Auto Body. 401-272-3340. Let's go back. Now, keep in mind, Cicilline, he's going to make a fortune off of Facebook. Keep in mind who the background is, what he's all about. This is all about, I think it's just a huge shakedown of big tech. So let's hear what he has to say about Facebook. And one of the reasons why Facebook is so tough on President Trump or any conservative is because they're now going to have to answer and deal with the likes of Congressman David Cicilline. So let's um, rejoin that a little bit, folks. The entire first half of the impeachment trial. So we're going to move on to another topic. And uh, nothing is bigger right now than than the pandemic. And I want to talk to you about the vaccine rollout. Uh, 12 News asked Harvard, Harvard researchers to assess the state's vaccine distribution using CDC data. The state received an F and ranked it dead ah. last in the country for vaccines distributed per capita. Dead last. No topic is more important to your constituents right now. Are you frustrated with the pace of, of rollout in this I, state? I, I think you're absolutely right. There is no issue more important than making certain we get vaccines into the arms of people immediately. Uh, and I think that's the responsibility of the state and local federal government to be doing everything we can to do that. Uh, I think we clearly had some problems with the rollout here, obviously. Uh, I know the uh, director of the Department of Health yesterday talked about moving to a central uh, portal. I think a lot of states have had a lot of success with that. Um, a very big piece of the new COVID relief package relates to additional vaccines and additional resources for vaccine distribution and testing. Uh, and so that relief package will focus additional resources on this, but it's a it's got to be a number one priority. People are hurting. One of the key strategies in crushing this virus is getting everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible. Uh, and that's a big piece of this new COVID relief package. You've always been an ally of Gina Raimondo, who is on her way out uh, to become Commerce Secretary. But look, a lot of people think part of what went wrong and why Ron wound up so slow is that she's kind of do, trying to do two jobs at once, That's get ready right. to be Commerce Secretary while still being the governor. Yep. You know, would Ron be better off if she stepped aside? Yes. Prepared for- 
a new job and let Dan McKee yes. take over now. Look, I, I think there's going to be a lot of time for people to make assessments about blame and pointing fingers. What we need to do is make sure we're doing everything we can wow. to get vaccines out as quickly as possible. I think the governor has done a terrific job in her six years as our governor. I think she's going to be a great secretary of commerce, and I look forward to working with the new governor, Governor McKee. But we have to work together as partners and making sure we're doing everything we can to get this right. This is an urgent priority for every single person who works in government. I think the uh, Dr. Nicole Alexander Scott yesterday uh, said make it simpler and faster. I think that's right. And we're going to continue to work closely with them. Well, to make sure have you talked to Dan McKee yet? Yes. What did, what did you talk I about? I just extended up? my uh, best wishes to him and told him that I look forward to working with him and I would help in any way to be sure that he was successful. It's important to our state. With the uh, relief package, you obviously support direct uh, payments to American households. Do you think there should be an income get, uh, cap? Well, um, the, the proposal we have now is for, a, a, uh, this was President Biden's proposal, is for an additional $1,600, so this the $2,000 payment um, that it provides. $1,400. $1,400, yes. Sorry, so a total of $2,000. Uh, in addition to that, it's obviously extended unemployment, it's uh, nutrition assistance, it's rental assistance, it's mortgage assistance, um, state and local aid, which for me was a number one priority to help local communities and state governments deal with the shortfalls that the pandemic has produced. Uh, it'll bring about uh, $1.7 billion to Rhode Island, about $600 but those million. direct payments, 150,000 households, 75,000 single, what, do, you, do you support um, a cap? You know, I, I don't know what the current proposal is with respect to a cap. I think we want to be sure people who need the help get it, and people who don't need the help uh, are obviously less concerned. We want to be sure that struggling families who are facing real challenges get the resources they need. So I think if a cap is a part of the solution, that, that's fine. But we want to be sure that the money is being used for people who are in real need. And, you know, there are 44,000 44, Rhode Islanders who are out of work last month. We've lost almost 2,500 Rhode Islanders to this virus. So this relief package is bold. It's going to make a real difference. It's going to help small businesses. It's going to help struggling families. It's going to make a real difference for local and state government. And you expect it to pass the House next week? Yes. Um, so I have to ask you about something, and we've done this for like 10 years. 2022 is coming, and the state is likely to lose one of the two U.S. House seats. And you've danced around this with me 500 times. Oh, I think we'll keep it, whatever. Every analysis I've seen says Rhode Island just is not going to have enough people when the census is done to keep that seat. Uh, do, do you think Rhode Island's going to lose the seat first? I hope we don't because, uh, you know, again, it will depend a lot on how well our census count is relative to other states. I think we had a good census count here. If other states underperform some, then, we, then I think we have an opportunity to hold on to two seats. The reason it matters a lot that we hold on to two seats is so much of the resource allocations that are made by the Congress depend on the number of congressional seats you have. So it'll be a significant financial loss to Rhode Island for, you know, aid to our senior centers and educational aid and infrastructure assistance and all the resources that come from the federal government. So it matters a lot to Rhode Island that we continue to have two members of Congress. I hope we will. But to be honest with you, Ted, like, we're in the middle of the worst public health crisis in our lifetime. As I said, 2,500 Rhode Islanders have died. 44,000 Rhode Islanders are out of work. People are hurting. This is not a time to kind of be self-indulgent and start contemplating what my future is. Well, my focus I is on what I can do to help Rhode Island families right now. I just got reelected just a few months ago. I would note uh, by... Uh, 
more than 50 points, which is the first time that's happened in two decades. Yes, I, said, I remember that election. So my, my experience is work hard, do your job, deliver results. You any, politics will take care of themselves. Have you had any conversations with Congressman Landrian about who's not going to run if no, there's only one seat? No, you haven't discussed it at no. once. Have your chiefs of staff discussed it? No. So, what, so would you consider stepping Look, aside? We're not, we're, I haven't given it any thought. My focus is on my that. work. I, you're, you're, well, you're, the other question is, shouldn't you be having those conversations? When no, it's look, just around the corner. What we should be doing is focusing on what we should be doing is focusing on the urgent challenges facing Rhode Islanders. People are facing an economic crisis, a healthcare crisis. All of my energy, and I know all of Congressman Lange's energy. Now, folks, and again, good afternoon. It's John DePietro. Now, is there anyone that believes that? I mean, you shouldn't believe it. I'll tell you exactly what's going on. What is difficult for somebody, this is musical chairs, and one of the chairs is about to disappear. If Congressman Cicilline was confident that they were going to retain both seats, then he would dismiss this and say, I feel very good. Now, the fact that he's saying that leads me to believe, and if you want to be objective, that he's pretty confident that the state is going to lose one of the congressional seats. Now, Congressman Langevin had hinted, okay, I'm going to run for governor in 2022. And he's got money. And he doesn't he hasn't run statewide, but he would expect he he has had success in Warwick and he has had success in Cranston and Warwick is a big one. So Congressman Langevin, in order to become governor, would have to, you know, do well in the northern part of the state, Congressional District one, Providence and North. But the fact is, the problem for Congressman Langevin now is Incoming Governor Dan McKee, this is going to be like an incumbent. Incoming Governor Dan McKee is going to have, uh, you know, 18 months to make his case that he should stay as the governor. Now, the first step of that is he needs to win the Democrat primary in 2022. And then step two, but I think they feel whoever wins that primary wins the general election. Now, Congressman Langevin, how would he fare up against that? Not well. You could certainly make an argument that Langevin and McKee would kind of pull from the same pool. So now it's a problem. But if you're Congressman Cicilline, you're sitting there. You know, you just came off the impeachment. You were one of the impeachment managers. I'm sure they're thinking if there's anyone stepping aside, it's not us. It would be Langevin. And as much as notice he mentioned, and I won by 50 points. Well, as I have pointed out, and again, folks, good afternoon at 140 on this Monday. It's John DePietro on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. Today is Monday, February 22nd. As I point out to you that the Channel 12 guys don't point out is when Cicilline was elected in 2010 to Congress, he supposedly got 80,000 votes. Now we go back to this past November, and he supposedly got 160,000 votes. Now, I don't think all of, all of that is legitimate, but he's making a statement there. That's why he ran up the score as much as he could back in November to try to scare off Langevin. He is basically, he's not stepping aside for Congressman. Jim Langevin has no presence in Washington. Congressman Langevin has never had any legislation passed. I think Cicilline, Congressman Cicilline feels that he would expect the media to say, well, certainly, you know, you're not going anywhere. But he doesn't say that. 
So now Senator Reed just won re-election November. He's he's not going anywhere. So Senator Reed, he's going to be senator till 2026. That's a long way off. Senator Whitehouse was just elected in 2018. He's not up for re-election till 2024. Do I think that Cicilline would take on Rita Whitehouse in a primary? No, I don't think that. He's not going anywhere. The one that needs to find a seat in this game of musical chairs would be, in fact, Congressman Langevin. He's going to be odd man out. So Langevin, I think, is the one that needs to you know, make a decision. Do I think he would challenge Senator Whitehouse? For, no, I don't think he would challenge either Reed or Whitehouse. McKee, they have no allegiance to. So, you know, does Langevin, he was in Congress. He was Secretary of State. I, I, don't, I don't know what he does, you know, to be other than governor. I don't know what Congressman Langevin would do. I mean, I don't, he's not going to, I don't think, run for general treasurer. He's not a lawyer. He's not going to run against Peter Narona. I don't think he'd run for lieutenant governor. Uh, Congressman Langevin, who's been now in Congress for 20 years, I, he would, I would imagine, never mind. And folks, you also have to remember, it's not just them, it's them and staff. You know, it's not just Congressman Langevin. It's Congressman Langevin and staff. What is the staff going to do? So they would like to try to stay in Washington. So, but I think based on this dynamic that he's odd man out. If someone's leaving and if Cicely, if uh, Congressman Langevin wants to run against Cicilline, good luck. Folks, at, at, um, Let's see. Right now, the time is 1.43. This portion of the program is brought to you by J.K.L. Engineering. Now, listen, it's John DePietro on this Monday. If you're having a problem with your heating system, call J.K.L. They're licensed in Rhode Island, in Massachusetts. It's J.K.L. Engineering. Call them 401-351-7600. 401-351-7600. J.K.L. Engineering. With J.K.L., Estimates are free. Financing is available for over 54 years. Their reputation is second to none. They're licensed in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. With JKL, they can reduce your oil bill by as much as 90%. They have the highest rebates on the market. Call JKL Engineering today at 401-351-7600. 401-351-7600. JKL Engineering. All right, let me play just a little more of uh, Congressman Cicilline, and then it finishes up. He's on uh, Newsmakers. Energy is devoted to responding to the needs of Rhode Islanders. We have lots of time for both. Okay, uh, so look, I, I do want to touch on antitrust real quick. Uh, you remain the chairman of the subcommittee uh, on antitrust, and next week that committee will be holding hearings uh, to consider laws to, quote, address the rise in abuse of market power online and to modernize the antitrust laws. I want to look at Australia real quick. Uh, Facebook has stopped the ability for news stories to be posted on their pages in Australia because lawmakers there are considering a bill that would require social the social media giant and others to pay media companies for its co- content. Would you support similar legislation here? 
Well, I've actually introduced a bill, uh, the Journalism Competition Act, which is intended to provide a level playing field so that publishers and online producers of content could negotiate and have a level playing field with large technology platforms to address exactly this issue. Uh, but it's really a symptom of a much larger problem. As you know, uh, I led an investigation for 16 months. It was a bipartisan investigation of the largest technology platforms and the kind of anti-competitive behavior that they've engaged in. We are going to begin work now to implement and put forth a number of solutions to this. But this is a big challenge. These are monopolies with tremendous market power that uh, are crushing competitors, uh, crushing innovation, causing real harm to privacy. And uh, we have a lot of work to do to make these markets work. You do have Ken Buck, who's the Republican on the committee, does seem at least supportive of potentially working together on this. So there could be bipartisanship around it. But we do also hear from conservatives, Republicans, who are our viewers, who say they see the president getting banned. And yes, obviously, there are specific acts he took that led the media's. But that's, it just, again, shows the enormous power they have. And people say, well, wait, you know, today it's Trump. But what if it's somebody you like down the road? Do you worry about that despite your own hostility to President Trump? Well, I mean, look, these platforms have enormous power. They're monopolies. They have, you know, market dominance, unlike they have no competitors. So part of the reason you have to worry is because they have so much market power. They can keep people out. They can change an algorithm and put somebody out of business. They can decide to delist your company or your product from Amazon and you're put out of business. So, yes, monopolies are dangerous because they have so much power. All right, folks, good afternoon. It's John DePietro. I want to... um just interject for a moment because I'm seeing that um, Governor Amundo and Dr. Scott have apparently um, taken to Facebook and they're trying to answer some questions regarding all the problems with the Rhode Island Department of Health. So I want to tap into that. Just... Um, um. Have you added more people? And also one of the other issues, people, when they don't this get an appointment a, first thing, then are finding that they, they go back later. Why not just open up all the appointments and then populate them as, as they, you know, when a day fills up, then just open the next one so people don't have to keep going back and back. So uh, we, we do have live individuals on the phone lines and um, we'll continue to monitor that and expand as we need to. Um, and then in terms of uh, adding slots for uh, vaccinations, we start with what we anticipate to be the number and then want to make sure that uh, we are able to add to that if we can. Certainly as we go forward, we, we can make adjustments, but that has been the uh, starting point that we've uh, chosen to go with as we learn what the response is and come up with a few days of assessment on what we should be putting out there at the beginning of the day. Hey, Governor, it's uh, U.S. Sherman from Seattle as well. Thanks for talking with us today. The Lieutenant Governor was pretty critical of your administration's vaccine rollout last week, uh, saying that it hasn't moved quickly enough. He said that you're supporting him on a daily basis. Have you talked to him since then? And if so, what are you, what are you telling him? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I had a long call with him this morning, and we try to touch base extremely regularly, if not daily. Um, you know, I think, as I said uh, at the beginning when I made my comments, we've made huge progress, even in the past five or six days. Our initial 
strategy was to be very targeted, right? To focus on the most vulnerable populations, trying to bring down our hospitalizations. By the way, that worked. Now the next phase is uh, broader uh, immunization, faster. And even in the, again, even in the past few days, we've jumped up 17 spots on the New York Times um, uh, list. So uh, he and I are working closely together. I'm trying to do everything I can to support his transition. And, you know, I, as I said, I think we are working the kinks out. And you, I think you're just going to continue to see it get better and better as the state mass vaccination um, site continue to expand. We need to expand capacity um, in the system so more people can get vaccinated, and that's exactly what we're doing. Just a quick follow-up. Governor? Just just a quick follow-up. I I wonder, you know, I think that the perception may be right now that um, some of that criticism from him and and the New York Times and the the, um, Harvard University ranking um, spurred your administration, you and your administration, to move quicker. Do you agree with that perception? Say the question again, Eli. Yeah, sure. So the perception that um, I think the public perception right now is that some of the criticism of your administration moving too slowly has spurred you to to open up the mass sites to move more quickly with vaccinations. And I'm just wondering, do you agree with that perception? Yeah, got it. I'm sorry, I didn't catch the question. Uh, No, no, absolutely not. Look, this was always the plan. We had a very deliberate plan. informed by the experts. Now this whole time I've listened to public health experts, Dr. Alexander Scott and the team, we had a vaccination task force and our explicit strategy was initially start in a targeted way with healthcare providers and the most vulnerable people, nursing homes, drive down hospitalizations and then move to, you know, what I said, broader, faster across the population. So. This is the plan, and now we're at that phase of our plan. I guess the question that there's a bunch of reporters on this uh, call who have been told that you're going to sign some sort of executive order to give Lieutenant Governor McKee more authority over hiring cabinet directors. Can you clarify? I mean, is there anything in the works on that? So we, uh, as I said, I had a call with him this morning, and I I asked him pretty much every day, how can I assist with the transition? So I don't have anything to say right now, um, Dan, is that Dan? But, you know, we're, we're working through things. Are you, I mean, specifically the one that everybody's asking about is DLT because Scott's last day is today. So what's going to happen with that? Yes, by the way, I should take a half a second to thank Scott for his unbelievable leadership. Um, And uh, I will have to appoint a um, uh, successor. And so, you know, I talked to the lieutenant governor this morning on that. I want to make sure that he and I are on the same page, and I'll probably have more news to make on that later. Governor Patrick Anderson, the lieutenant governor named his chief of staff, Tony Silva, to be point person uh, on COVID-related matters. 
is that a good idea to have someone within the governor's office rather than a public health uh, expert running point on COVID and vaccinations? Uh, you know, I am not going to now or ever second guess the lieutenant governor's decisions. I'm here to support his transition and make sure that he is successful. Uh, having said that, um, Dr. Alexander Scott uh, is and will be the lead. In fact, just again this morning, the lieutenant governor uh, recommitted to uh, having her be the public health lead and the director of health and I mean honestly the entire time the governor's office has been of course deeply involved in everything so uh, that's his call you know he has to have a team he's comfortable with to do this job and and you know he's committed to keeping the existing COVID leadership in place including Dr. Alexander Scott and General Callahan um, and I, you know, if he wants Tony to be in a particular role, then that's absolutely his prerogative. He ought to do that. Governor, if you're answering questions now, uh, and you know, why can't you go back to doing the COVID briefing if, and, and put your face back in front of it? I think a lot of the criticism has been that you are no longer the public face, that you're not there. And now Lieutenant Governor McKee apparently isn't going again either, but why not just answer questions? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, um, I think it's important that Rhode Islanders get comfortable with seeing Go Governor McKee as the person who's leading the state through the end of the pandemic. Um, I know from my own transition, I was afforded that courtesy. You know, in a, in a traditional transition, it's months between November and the end of January. And in my transition, I was afforded the opportunity to be out in front, even before I was inaugurated. So I thought that that, um, I still I mean, I think that that's the right thing to do. So that's the approach that I am taking. But this is, you know, obviously a different situation with the pandemic and obviously a highly critical uh, vaccine rollout. And I do, you know, him not being critical of that vaccine rollout, it's not his rollout. Um, and so uh, again, now, now nobody is there, and it, it seems a lot of the criticism has been that people would like to see somebody in charge, especially the person who is still making the decisions. Yeah, no, I, listen, I understand that, and that's why I'm here today, Brian. I think that's Brian. Like, that's why I'm here. I am answering questions. I am fully accountable to the people of Rhode Island. I continue to work. I was working this weekend with the team on the vaccine rollout, and I am here answering your questions. Also, it's my understanding that the lieutenant governor is going to be there um, on Thursday, and I think, you know, he and I are just working hand in glove to try to um, keep Rhode Islanders safe, and that's uh, certainly what we are focused on. Governor, it's Steve Clampton. Um, we've heard suggestions that as far as the local vaccination clinics, there's a suggestion that mayors are inviting people to come get vaccinated. Is this the case? And does this reflect a Noah guy culture? That is the first I've heard about that. Sorry, the doctor wants to jump in. Hi, Steve. We do have it worked out with our municipal clinics to continue vaccinating those 75 years of age and older. Uh, the cities and towns have really done a great job supporting our senior community with doing this, working with senior housing, um, engaging with the seniors who are local.
fully uh, present and reaching out to them. They've filled out the registration for them, done whatever is needed to help them uh, get vaccinated. So perhaps that may be what is uh, being interpreted, but on, uh, you know, just like every other site, um, they are able to uh, extend now to 65 and older, but we know that our cities and towns really have been continuing to prioritize as many of the 75 and older uh, individuals that they have uh, so that they can continue the good work they're doing with getting them access to vaccines. Can mayors invite people specifically to come get vaccinated? Yes, we are sharing lists with them from senior centers, from uh, different uh, registries that we have that we know seniors predominate and they also know their senior community and have been uh, engaging with them, but only with those who are eligible. Those 75 and older is what their focus has been and now it's been extended to 65 and older. Couple more questions. Director, I just, um, following up on Patrick's question, uh, do you plan, I know that you're- Folks, it's John DePietro. This is uh, live right now at 158. Governor Raimondo and Dr. Scott taking questions on a Zoom call. Definitely, I've been here and you know, it's important to keep us going strong throughout this. And I've enjoyed and appreciated working with our outgoing and incoming governor to keep what we need in place. I know you didn't Governor, I know the claim has I been that Rhode Island's plan is... But I would like to say that um, we would be in a lot worse shape if not for Dr. Alexander Scott's leadership, and I'm personally grateful, but also on behalf of Rhode Island. Go ahead, Ryan. Sorry, Governor, I know the claim that you've made and, and Dr. Alexander Scott has made all along is that Rhode Island's plan has been more strategic than other states, and that's why it was slower. But, I mean, other states have done nursing homes and assisted livings and, and health care workers, at mostly the, to a full degree, if not to, to some degree. Uh, what do you see that makes Rhode Island's plan different and slower as opposed to these other states who have also focused on these targeted groups? Yeah, so thank you for asking that. Um, The big difference is that more than almost any other state, we've seen huge drops in hospitalizations. All right, folks, listen, it's John DiPietro. A lot of information there. We're going to have more on this and follow it. Uh, Enjoy. Be careful out on the roads on this Monday. Remember, if you're in an accident, call West Fountain Auto Body 272-3340. We're back tomorrow at 11. Stay tuned. The John Dion program is next. But first, the 2 o'clock news right here on AM 1380. WNRI Winsocket. WNRI.